0: A breakwater built by the waves broke the initial force of the sea and weakened the onrush of the tide. Though it was amazing that Alcione could do so, she leapt onto it. She flew, and beating the soft air on new found wings, a sorrowing bird, she skimmed the surface of the waves. As she flew, her plaintive voice came from a slender beak, like someone grieving and full of sorrows. When she reached the mute and bloodless corpse, she clasped the dear limbs with her new wings and kissed the cold lips in vain with her hard beak. People doubted whether Six felt this or merely seemed to raise his face by a movement of the waves, but he did feel it. And at last, through the god's pity, both were changed to birds, the Halcyons. Though they suffered the same fate, Their love remained as well, and their bonds were not weakened by their feathered form. They mate and rear their young, and Alcyone broods on her nest for seven calm days in the wintertime, floating on the water's surface. Then the waves are stilled. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand.
1: And I'm Ian McInnes.
0: And this is Real Fantastic Beasts.
1: Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. And I am super excited today because we are returning to the truly fantastical. We've spent several episodes talking about animals that are pretty real, although they're also in their medieval and renaissance forms completely fantastic. But this time we are talking about... The most magical bird ever, a bird that was sometimes called nature's darling. And for those of our listeners who know about fantastic birds, we are not talking about the phoenix. What are we talking about, Alexa?
0: We are talking about the halcyon, Ian. And the halcyon, as the little passage that I just read from Ovid suggests, is an animal that began. In an act of divine transformation, that is to say, the queen who has lost her beloved king, Siix, her name is Alcyone, she is transformed through the intervention of the goddess Juno or Hera into the form of a bird. And she flies out over the waves to join her drowned husband, where his body is floating. And Jupiter and Juno
1: intervene. So back up a little bit. How did it happen? Like, How did all this drowning and transformation
0: happen? Oh, it's a long story. But essentially, CX decides that he has to go on this journey. There's a, a lot of backstory in Ovid having to do with the death of his brother and various things that have happened. So he decides he has to go on this journey. He and Alcyone are not only king and queen, but they're deeply in love. And they have taken to calling each other pet names. He calls her Juno and she calls him Jupiter. And as we know, the Greek gods are and, and the Roman gods are not particularly tolerant of no. human folly. So... Essentially, he's drowned as a punishment for this hubris, this this crime of pride. So he drowns, and she is also punished by the loss of her great love. But the gods are also fickle, right? So they take pity on these poor lovers in the end and transform them into this pair of birds. And the female of this species of bird, I suppose you could say... (laughs) builds its nest on the seashore, or according to Ovid, right on the sea itself. And so the gods, in in particular Aeolus, the god of the winds, locks the winds up in a box for seven days while she broods on her nest. And this becomes a time of calm and peace on the ocean.
1: And what time of year is this?
0: Well, coincidentally or not... It happens to be the solstice, the winter solstice. So right about now.
1: Yes. So as you are listening to this podcast, the Halcyon is busily incubating her nests either near or on the ocean somewhere in complete calm.
0: It's really interesting because, of course, the story that I just read is, you know, from the first century CE. It's from the sort of great Julio-Claudian period of the Roman empire, it has its origins in Greek mythology. Um, It's in Aesop, it's in Aristotle as well. Although, interestingly, in those accounts, we don't hear the story so much of the transformation that Ovid tells us. We just hear about this bird who lays her eggs on the edge of the sea and the god's calm the waves to ensure that these birds have, you know, a successful breeding period. Why? It's because it's so beautiful. Basically, this bird is such a beautiful bird. And Aristotle particularly mentions that it's blue and green and somewhat purple. And these colors are just impressive and beautiful. And it's interesting because the word halcyon becomes the uh, Latin species or genus name for all of the different species of kingfishers, which are indeed colorful birds that tend to dwell beside the water, though seldom the sea, usually a river or a pond. Yeah, they're they're not marine birds. (laughs) No, no, they're not. And Linnaeus was clearly thinking of this tradition when he gave that name to the kingfisher. So that's so fascinating because this
1: seems to be then a bird that begins as through natural history and is given a legendary backstory by people like Ovid rather than emerging from a legendary backstory and then being given to a real, uh, a bird.
0: I think there's actually some elements of this story already present in um, Hesiod and Homer. I am not a classicist, but I think, you know, often what you have is a lot of different elements kind of floating around and Ovid being Ovid Roman writer, who's deeply, deeply versed in, his Greek classics is able to sort of pull all these threads together and weave a more coherent story. Of course, again, I'm not a classicist, I'm a medievalist, but this story is really, really relevant for the Middle Ages, the story of the Halcyon bird. And the reason it's so relevant is that not only is the Halcyon in the medieval bestiary, you know, it's a pretty brief Account, But it says it's a seabird and it makes its nest on, in the winter on the still waters of the ocean. And there's this period of continuous tranquility. Now, some sources say seven days and some say 14 days. But in any case, it's as if all of nature sort of takes this breath, this moment of peace and stillness in order to encourage the, the survival of these hatchlings.
1: That's a pretty powerful event.
0: It is. And I think it's probably not inconsequential that it falls right in the Christmas season as well.
1: You mean Silent Night and all?
0: Yes, that's exactly what I'm
1: thinking of. Is that what happened in the Middle Ages? Did they turn it, as they so often did, into a, a, a Christian allegory?
0: In the Ovid Moralisé, the sort of Christian moral that's extracted from this story of Alcione and CX is not that romantic. Basically, the author tells us that CX should have been more willing to abandon worldly things, i.e., his wife, and to voyage out over the rough seas of temptation to sin in the ship of the church. So it's really belabored, I think, the moralization. Yes. (laughs) Um, The ship goes down basically because CX's faith isn't strong enough.
1: And what about the transformation? to kingfishers
0: and it's just not discussed and that is one of the problems Interesting. <laughs> of, of the of these moralizations like they'll fixate on a specific theme and leave out other elements of the story that are well well don't
1: worry because that moralization will come well, like we, we'll still get to make that point later but so this bird appears in all in many bestiaries then i mean it's it is a popular medieval bird
0: he, Yes, it is. And it's sort of interesting because when it's depicted in the bestiary, and we've seen this before, right? That the depiction of the bird in the bestiary is not, you know, your your early modern sort of proto-natural history types would not Find this a satisfactory scientific illustration because the bird that we see, I mean, it's just a kind of generic bird. Like I'm looking at at some different images here. Sometimes it looks sort of like a goose with a toothed beak, um, webbed feet it's white. Often it's shown biting its own tail. Not quite sure why that's the case. Sometimes it's definitely often shown with webbed feet. And if you've ever seen an actual kingfisher, they don't have webbed feet. But I, I think this kind of gets back to the fundamental thing about the halcyon is that it's not really the the modern bird that we, or not modern, but the, the bird that modern scientific nomenclature identifies with the halcyon that is to say the kingfisher though it shares some characteristics with that bird and this is like to me in this gets right at the nub of what a fantastic beast is because we have these beasts that are described in the bestiary and that are ascribed these certain characteristics right both visually and through the text and we want them to be recognizable real animals they just aren't
1: but then of course they become you know a real animal as the as the kingfisher is or are, or that their use parallels their fantastical existence parallels a real existence for a different for an animal that simply doesn't match in so many yeah. ways and to, yeah. you know, to be fair so the actual kingfisher which i mean there's species of kingfisher all around but the one, the European kingfisher, it's a bit smaller than the American one, but they're both very pretty birds. They're small. Uh, they live, they do live by water, but I'm pretty sure that there's no, there's no marine version. They don't, they don't ever fish in, in saltwater as far as I know.
0: Yeah, I haven't been able to find any evidence of that either. In medieval China, they were associated with the sort of wetlands of South China, So there's a whole tradition in medieval Chinese poetry, evidently, that concerns itself with kingfishers. Obviously, halcyon is not a term of relevance in China, right? It's a Latinate term. But it's interesting because there they were definitely associated with the sort of tropical south. And they were also associated with kind of luxury and display of wealth and exoticism, and of course, color. Their feathers were highly valued. We don't really have that association with the halcyon, do we?
1: No. But the word halcyon itself was used interchangeably with Kingfisher, at least in English. And I'm going to guess that probably comes from French, does it?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it has all of these variants. There's alcedo, alcyon, basically all of them derived from the Latin term.
1: They all have ALC in there somewhere. And I guess the yeah. the H for Halcyon does that come does that go back to the Greek, the fact that you have Greek words beginning with the alpha with a little notation that there's a, a H there.
0: Yeah, it must be. I mean, I'm speculating
1: at this point. I want to make sure we do complete justice to the bird in the Middle Ages. This is a bird that, that is very common throughout Europe. I mean, any small stream, if you live near any small stream or waterway, you're probably going to see this bird daily because they, they love yeah. trees and water and, and they're just, they're a common bird.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what's so interesting too, is there's this tradition that I mentioned of Ovid Mochelize, and that becomes the source or one important source for Geoffrey Chaucer in his literary work. And in a poem called The Book of the Duchess, he uses this story about Alcione and CX as kind of a bedtime story. The poem's narrator is trying to fall asleep and he can't fall asleep. And so he starts reading this story. And as he's recounting it, it it's not the most soporific story. It's this terrible story about lovers torn apart by, by the gods, right? <laughs> But somehow because in the story there's a lot of sort of comparison of sleep and death and somehow that produces a soporific effect on Chaucer's narrator and he falls asleep before you get to the part where Alcyone and CX are transformed into birds. Like the best part of the story, the whole point of the story.
1: From From our uh, perspective, the
0: whole point of the story. Well, and from an Ovidian perspective too. I mean, the book that ovid wrote is called the metamorphoses yes (laughs) so like he and and i'm sure there's literary scholars out there who have commented on the fact that he kind of misses the point and there's this missing conclusion to the story but the birds don't enter into the Chaucerian account of this myth and that to me is pretty interesting
1: so that, I mean, that seems to make sense given what you're saying about what, what appears in, in the bestiary tradition, which is the magical result of the Ovidian transformation story, but not the transformation story itself. And then the kind of interest in that, th- that the story as story, right? So like, it's, there is, it's as if there's a kind of like a narrative gap in like being opened up between the the beginning and the end of that story, which may have, been packaged by Ovid as a story of transformation, but is getting separated from the from the Halcyon because they think of the Halcyon as just a creature, right, which has these magical properties, not as an etiological animal, i.e., one that comes from you know a story. Which, they, right. like to think of it as etiological means that you're sort of thinking that it is purely legendary rather than a, a real. Animal that you're interested in for those purposes, so I can sort of see why that that would occur and why you would get accounts that are more interested in the you know the other parts of the story. I know that the story mm-hmm. that story of Alcione and Six, you know, of interest later and to artists later, and the scenes that are of interest are not the transformation scenes. They're usually the scene where the dead husband comes, you know, is represented before the grieving spouse. That's the horrifying Mm -hmm. scene that everyone wants to paint or engrave.
0: Right. Because she's forced, she, you know, it's one of those classic Greek or Roman legends in which the human makes a wish basically, and the gods fulfill it in the cruelest possible way. Yes. Right. So, you know, she says, I, I just want to see him one more time basically.
1: Yeah. And they're like, okay, he doesn't look so good.
0: (laughs) So what she's shown is his disgusting, you know, bloated, drowned corpse that speaks to her, which is kind of a horror movie,
1: yes. episode
0: in itself, yeah. right
1: and that so that the, like that the the horror narrative kind of renders the other conclusion, I mean, even in narrative terms, right it's an, it's it's got its own climax. It doesn't need a kingfisher anymore, yeah, yeah, shall I tell you about the Renaissance?
0: Yes. Let's hear about what happens with the halcyon bird. The, the halcyon Wrensels.
1: bird. Well, as we've encountered before, there is a lot of persistence and repetition of the material that has come through the middle ages. So that idea of the calming bird gets repeated. And and that's where you get the, that phrase that I used at the beginning, nature's darling, which comes from one of a, a like an early modern thinker who's, mm-hmm commenting on the legend and just amazed at this bird who's so special and uh, in all sorts of ways. So that legend becomes actually related to the actual kingfisher, the kingfisher that we, we know of as the real bird, because there was a folk belief that if you take a dead kingfisher and you tie it up and you hang it by the bill, that its breast will turn towards the wind, even if it's not out in the wind right? So like, you take it inside, you hang it up, and it will always turn to face the wind.
0: And that's useful in what capacity?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Unclear (laughs) why that is the case. But that was apparently a a very persistent folk belief. And that's the one, you know, when Shakespeare refers to the kingfisher, he refers to it in those terms, right? Like, that's what he's turning about is they're commenting on is the idea of the dead kingfisher hanged up, hanged by its bill. So I You'd, you'd either guess that it's just believed that that would be the case or that people were doing it. For what reason, I'm not sure. Maybe so you don't have to go outside to see where the wind's coming from, you know?
0: Yeah, but where are you getting the kingfisher? Like, you just happen to have one sitting around?
1: Of course. you, you A dead you know. one?
0: Yeah. Or you, a live one that you kill for the purpose? Like...
1: You kill I'm a kingfisher, say. you dry it out, you hang it by the bill, and you've got uh, you know, the early modern version of one of those little uh weather stations now that people buy where they can see what the wind is doing outside.
0: Oh, I see. It doesn't have to be fresh.
1: <laughs> oh no, no. There's no there's no requirement at all that it be like freshly dead. It's just gotta be a dead a dead kingfisher. But so that's the that's the the real bird is clearly being influenced by this kind of uh, bec- but via some kind of connection to the wind, I guess, you know, because calming winds, you could see Aeolus, God of the winds, those kind of connections are, are evident in the kind of the persistence of that book belief. But then it's also getting turned into very strongly turned into a, just a poetic illusion that we have a phrase that is sort of persisted to this day is that phrase halcyon days, right? Like, we, yeah. if, if you encounter the word halcyon today, it is almost never in reference to an actual a bird at all. It's simply a reference to a peaceful, calm time, usually in the middle of some kind of tumultuous uh, other time, right? So like a, a period of peace and calm uh, taken out of, you know, the middle of something else. So happy time, halcyon days.
0: Mm-hmm. I feel like I've heard that phrase used um, in histories of the English Civil war.
1: Yeah. Anytime you've got conflict and tumult, Mm -hmm. uh, you've got the opportunity. You have the opportunity for housing days. And of course, winter, you know, the storms of winter become an opportunity. If there's a calm in the, if if there's a sudden calm in the middle of a stormy season, you can see how that kind of marks itself off in people's belief. Uh, So -hmm. the poets, poets love, House, the Halcyon and Halcyon days. And the, one of the reasons I asked about the connections with the nativity is that uh, Milton writes a, uh, an early poem called On the Morning of Christ's Nativity, which is, it's really, it's all about the large effect of the birth of Christ on everything. So everything comes to a halt. The oracles have, are, are, you know, like stop speaking. It's called the cessation of the oracles. Mm-hmm. Everything is quiet and calm, and he also refers to the bird of calm sitting on the wave. So, for Milton, oh. at least, he's very clear that the halcyon is associated with the birth of Christ, and that its calming effect—the calming effect associated with the halcyon—is parallel to all the other kinds of uh, sort of peace. You know, that the the idea of peace that's often associated with uh, with Christmas and and the nativity. So, Milton certainly uses it in that way. But it becomes sort of played out into those poetic allusions, which tends to weaken. It's no longer really a fantastical animal, I guess. I mean, maybe for Milton it is. I mean, he certainly calls it a bird for sure. Mm -hmm. So there's there's that going on. And then there's a little bit of proto-natural history. And the same kind of thing happens that happens with other animals where you've got the real animal and then the fantastical animal with the same name, even though they're clearly very different. The natural historians decide... Well, there, there, there's obviously two, there's two kingfishers, the one we know about, and the one that lives in the ocean, which Mm. must exist, because here are these stories about that, that animal, but they'll tell you about the other kingfisher, because that's the one they actually can actually observe. But they don't deny that there is a bird called the Halcyon that lives Mm. in or on the ocean and like lays its nest at this time of year. All that kind of stuff just gets replayed as like, well, that's natural history that I haven't observed, but I'm going to mention that that that's true because it's a different bird, right? Like it's not the kingfisher, it's a it's a different bird.
0: And it seems like that's not uncommon for these early natural historians, that they have to kind of square the circle, I guess I would say, because well, I think it's interesting because the halcyon is often shown biting its tail, right? So it's a sort of form of the urubus, you know, the beast that bites its tail. But it's a closed circle, right? And medieval commentators don't seem to be terribly concerned with matching up the halcyon bird with the kingfisher, even right. if they acknowledge that there's a relationship. But as a natural historian, you have to account for the observed behavior of the real birds and when it doesn't match up with the fantastic bird, then you're kind of, you, you have an explanatory crisis.
1: Yes. And, and that, but that, that crisis is actually of of deep interest for these early natural philosophers. Thomas Brown, I mentioned, I've mentioned Thomas Brown. um, Yeah. Before Uh, he wrote this book called pseudodoxia epigraphica, where he kind of takes on myths and legends but he takes them on very seriously, you know, even though he's he's myth busting. He's taking mm-hmm. the myth seriously in order in order to bust it. And he starts out by taking on the whole dead kingfisher hanging by the bill idea. And Brown says, "So, I took a kingfisher and I hung it up by its bill and I put it in an, an enclosed room and I watched what it did and I watched what the wind was doing." And he said, "They didn't match up, right? There was no connection, <laughs> right?" So then he says, I just wanted to be really sure. I got two dead kingfishers, and I hang them both up by the bill in the same room. And he says, oh. "The they never face the same direction, right?" So, like, <laughs> right? So, like so he's like, he, "Darn it!" Because, yeah. because he thought, well, like maybe it's turning to face the wind in like another location or another, you know, like, like I'll just get two if I put them up together. Then they should at least face the same direction, which they don't. And then he thought, well, what if there's Uh, what if my room is not closed enough? What if I've got kind of currents of air in there that are like, are messing with my experiment. So he he put them, he took the kingfishers and he put them in a bell jar and observed them there. And he said, well, not only are they not uh, facing the wind, but the wind is, you know, like during the course of my observations, the wind went, you know, like this changed by this many degrees and the birds didn't move. (laughs) So, you know, so he concludes, of course, that what he calls their occult and secret propriety is simply not true. Huh. But, then, but then he says, okay, so why do we have this belief about the kingfishers? He says, well, it's probably because of this other bird that nests at times of calm, right? And has a natural regard to the winds and the winds a natural regard to this other bird. So he says, the, our beliefs about the kingfisher are being contaminated by this other true natural fact about this other bird. And I mean, then he it decides- It's a
0: perfectly reasonable explanation, really. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's thinking about like, how do we, you know, it's, a, it's an epistemological challenge. Where does knowledge come from? Like, why do we believe this about bird A? Well, because the other bird, the true halcyon, I guess he calls it the true halcyon that's out there, uh, you know, has this connection and maybe it comes from that. But then he starts thinking about the, the, the quote unquote true halcyon. And he's not; he has no observations to work with, so he's simply speculating. But he says, look, well, we assume that the birds nest at this time of year, A, and that it is calm at this time of year. But then he says, it's not necessarily true that they are causing the calm. So this is a really early example of a thinker developing the idea of uh, the difference between causation and correlation. Right? He's arguing that, well, they're their nesting is correlated to a time of calm, but it doesn't mean that they are directly causing that calm because nature can do things for lots of different reasons by the undreamt of contrivances of nature, he calls it, uh, which aren't, uh, he says, imputable unto the intention or knowledge of the particular actor. So maybe they just happen to nest at this time of year. Although he also allows that nature does this to like, help every species out every species gets helped out by nature because nature provides the opportunity for that species to do what it needs to do and therefore if this bird needs to nest in the middle of winter nature will somehow manufacture that calm separately because of that but he's he is he's not sure about any of this he's throwing these things out there as possibilities for why this particular thing happens but he's very interested in the connection like why does nature do this thing
0: it's interesting to me that there's this i mean there's clearly this sort of scientific or proto-scientific interest in untangling the mythology from the real beast but at the same time this is a period as you mentioned where literary artists are really leaning in on the whole concept of the halcyon because i'm thinking one one of the elements of the myth is that it's very romantic you know there's this kind of this undying love between Alcyone and Six. And it's like, despite the fact that the gods have arrayed themselves against them, despite the fact that they've committed this sort of transgression against the gods, despite all of that, their love is immortal. And that image of the sort of paired, um, the cock and the hen, the paired animals is, is really powerful. I think there's, um, yes, there's definitely an epithalamion by John Donne, where he talks about—I mean, he doesn't really discuss the myth, but he's you know using various birds to illustrate the sort of true um, love, true yeah. love, yeah. And the halcyon's in there is you know one where the husband bird <laughs> um, takes care of his of his wife bird on her feather bed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Of course, the, the halcyon is gets its special get it gets its special calm. However, that might happen when it's when it is nesting. It's another maternal creature, or yes. a, a creature who has special power associated with its maternal presence, preserving and you know defending its young in egg right. form at this at this point. So that's you know, we, and we've seen that before. That somehow the like the that maternal moment uh, gets played out of a lot of fantastic creatures who have especially special powers when they're when they're mommy, fantastic creatures.
0: Right. And the whole sort of interest in maternal protection of the offspring and the maternal care for the offspring, I think that ties into, at least in the Middle Ages, it ties into a kind of intense interest in the Virgin Mary and her protective power, not just protective of her own child, but protective of humanity in general, the the new Eve who redeems humanity. She has this image of the Madonna of Mercy, where she literally spreads her wings over humanity. She sort of takes her cloak and spreads it out and people shelter inside her cloak, you know? So I wonder if it's an inescapable conclusion that the Halcyon Mother is in some ways. Mary and the the calm at the solstice the 14 days or the 7 days of calm which coincide with Christmas are the sort of calm that settles over Bethlehem in the night yes i think
1: the other issue that appeals to the early modern renaissance thinkers especially the especially artists and poets is the idea of what they would have called special providence which means that God has created order for a particular reason, and the structure and the sort of the history of the universe is guided by divine providence, capital P, right, which is a version of the of fate, right, but done in a, a, a Judeo-Christian tradition. But providence, in that in those terms, might not involve the very small individual actions. God could have created the world and have could be guiding it by providence in ways that affect the overall course of things. But a special providence indicates that God is paying attention down to a very small level, which is what seems in some ways to be happening with the halcyon, where all of nature can come to a halt in order that this one small bird, pretty, yes, but tiny little bird, can have its, you know, like... The, the entire climate changes in order that this one little bird is going to be able to have its nest. And I think that idea of a special providence is certainly appealing. There's a great moment at the end of Hamlet where Hamlet stops worrying about everything, stops being so anxious, stops being Hamlet uh, and says that there is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow so that oh. he uses a bird, right? He thinks, you know, the bird is the smallest of creatures that God still controls and understands and observes and thinks about the death of a sparrow. I think that's certainly an attractive idea in this period, especially because it is being un- the idea of special providence is being undone in in so many ways by the development of of what you know what we are we will come to call science, which mm-hmm. you know argues that the principles and processes are not the result of special providence, but of general principles, however providential they might be. They're not you know, they don't go down to the the smallest level.
0: Mm, Interesting.
1: So the last kind of proto-naturalist sort of interest or like possibility has to do with this idea that that what the bird is doing is calming the weather or the wind. And in the pre-modern world, the wind is thought of as the exhalation of the earth, which is in some sense, then uh, it's part of that idea that the earth and is a macrocosm for, so it's like individual creatures. So in that reading, the Earth itself is an animate creature with veins and breath, mm-hmm. and therefore potentially what we're looking at is the largest animal in the world, the entire Earth, being controlled by the smallest animal in the world. Well, a small animal, mm-hmm. the kingfisher. So the tiny controls the large. That the winds are in some ways the sort of the breath of the world and storms were thought to be the passions of the earth right so the the storms are the emotional state of the world huh. which is not inherent to the world but the passions were thought of as being not not innate but but things that happen to a body so that mm. storms and weather are alterable in some ways that we don't we don't think they are we we feel that the climate and the weather is sort of an inherent or natural part of the world as it's constituted but if the world is an individual, then a storm is not an innate part of the earth, but something that happens and can pass or could be controlled as well. So they're, I think they're interested in that relationship between macrocosm and microcosm, which pulls together the, the large and the small. And this story hits it, that kind of interest in the connection between the large and the small.
0: Interesting. Aren't there
1: kind of modern, some modern ecological theories that sort of try to think of the the whole Earth as being a creature?
0: Yeah, there's a sort of neo-animism, you know, that views the Earth as a living organism. Scientists, it's called the Gaia hypothesis. That's it. Yes, the Gaia hypothesis yeah and i mean scientifically speaking it's grounded in a very large set of data but it's the idea is about a century old or half a century old i think Mm -hmm. um and it's kind of this notion that like when everything's as it should be that it's a sort of balanced system that sustains itself now the scientists who came up with the concept, was really interested in determining whether life could exist on other planets. You know, what are the conditions that make life possible on this planet? And it's kind of part of this larger philosophical movement called the deep ecology movement.
1: It's interesting because it it harkens back to a much earlier idea that we see diminishing throughout the end of the Renaissance, but certainly, certainly very, very powerful. Uncertainty about what what constitutes a, a creature, you know, and yeah. what, is, what is animate and what is not animate? Or where does the animate end and the inanimate begin?
0: Right. It's so intriguing to me, though, that as you start to maybe get this idea of whole organism that is the web of life or whatever, that's starting to emerge a little bit in the early modern. That's so different to the medieval concept of all of nature is a book. This is a, that's a direct quote from Alain Ville, who was a 12th century thinker. The idea that God wrote this book and all creation is in this book. It's all beasts, all things, all rocks and stones and minerals and natural phenomena, like the weather, that's all, kind of a form of knowledge rather than a, you know, a phenomenon in and of itself.
1: Well, if, if nature is a, is a, a book as in, you know, a bestiary is a part of the, the book of nature, yes. they are the, then the creatures are in some ways discreet. It's less interested in connections between, or, you know, like what the language of the world is than in thinking about the, the world as, as, as a list or a series, like, mm-hmm. like a codex of, of, of things
0: an encyclopedia perhaps yeah.
1: yes and the minute you start being interested in the connections between large and small and the parallels and the, the analogies and all of those kinds of things there's that's the that's the early modern attempt to kind of understand what is that underlying language and for them they want it to be unitary they want they want the the little bird and the, and all of nature to be ha- to have a fundamental connection which is why they're kind of returned to the interest in that particular part of the story and do with what they what they can with it.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: All right. So <laughs> we have words. a question. <laughs> we have a question from a listener. So we have a listener named Jessica who asks, Do we have records of any dog names? I know the fighting dogs were not named compared to the bears. But particularly by the time the dogs are being included in portraits, surely at least some of the names were recorded. I love this question.
1: It's a great question.
0: Because, Jessica, the answer is yes. <laughs> but
1: but it's always names, yes, but.
0: <laughs> yes, but. The names were actually, names of pets are known from the Middle Ages. Now, some of these are fictional pets, literary pets. Um, Famously, both Tristan and Isot, the original Starcrest lovers, really, they both had dogs. They were dog owners. And Tristan's dog is a very fast running hound named Houston. And Isolde has a little fluffy white dog that has a fairy bell around its neck, like a magical bell around its neck. And that dog's name is Petit Crue. So they're at least in romance literature, evidence of dogs. Now, Anne Boleyn supposedly had a dog named Percoy.
1: Percoy from the French? Yeah, he,
0: yes, for Pourquoi, because he was a very inquisitive, nosy little dog.
1: Well, what we don't have are names that are a lot of human names used uh, for dogs, you know, Certainly, Perkoi is, you know, it's a, it's a, cute, it's a cute name um, for a dog, mm-hmm. but, but not they're not named like human. Chaucer, Chaucer has some dog names, like Talbot, Gerland, Call. I was looking for names of actual Mastiffs, right? Names that are uh, like reliably right. attached to a Mastiff. And it is actually difficult in some ways to find dog names that are attested to. So I have three names, Watch, Pepper, and Beavis. Beavis. And the, the one that sounds, yes, Beavis, right? But so here's the thing. There's a famous portrait in uh, Ditchley of Sir Henry Lee that I, I may have mentioned in our episode where he he was his life was saved by his dog. So he had his portrait painted with the dog and there's a poem to the dog in the portrait, literally on the portrait, there's a little poem about dog. That, po- that poem doesn't say what the dog's name is. The dog has been traditionally called Bevis or Bevis, but that's probably because Sir Walter Scott has a story where he, he kind of robs this story about the dog saving the guy's life and his dog in the fictional account is named Bevis and it's probably just gotten borrowed and reattached to that name. But it is interesting to think that you know your dog means so much to you that you write a poem about the dog and you have a portrait painted, an expensive process, with the poem in the portrait and yet, never anywhere do you say, you know, my dog Beavis, right? Or, you know, you'd never include the name of the dog in the portrait itself, which tells us something. That famous portrait by Van Dyke, that dog, there is no record as far as I can find of that dog's name, despite the fact that it had a name. I mean, they would have called it by something. That dog apparently got loose and had to be retrieved. And the notices that go out describe the dog. But they don't say answers to the name of you know whatever it might be, and then other names that get attached, you know, names like watch, right, or or pepper are clearly they're like uh, sort of performative names, right? Like a watchdog called watch, right, or a uh, a dog who's famous for biting called pepper, right? Like clearly they're they're a little bit like porcoy, right? Like oh, there's this attribute or this thing that we attach to the dog, so we just use the name for that. It's like they're almost placeholders for the animal rather than. Uh, kind of the unique identifiers that they would have been for, for human beings. And that's sort of maybe something worth thinking about is that, yes, mm-hmm. they they obviously they did have names for dogs and they obviously called dogs by name. But when they were doing that, they were thinking of it a little differently than we think of when we name a family pet, for instance.
0: Yes. Although, I mean, I would have to say it probably varies culture to culture and family to family. even. In modern times, how pet naming goes, and quite often the names of of people's pets reflect some caprice of a young child who is given the the i suppose responsibility to name the pet, which also tells you something about the way in which animals are members of our family but have a kind of child second status, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. I mean, because the people I know who are serious dog people, like they they really consider their relationship with their dog sort of their principal relationship. Those people's dogs always have unjoking, serious, straight up human names. I mean, OK, in my family, we've had a number of dogs named George, but that doesn't indicate seriousness on our part because George Sand is a famous author. And George Sand the dog is, you know, kind of a slightly tongue in cheek way of naming the dog. But, you know. (laughs) Yeah.
1: By the way, so if you have questions for us, you can either email them to producers at Real Fantastic Beasts or you can ask them on a Twitter account. Our handle, of course, is Real Fantastic Beasts on Twitter. You You can ask on Twitter and we will see it as well. But that is all we have for today. We're excited. This is our season finale, but don't worry. We'll be back in two weeks anyway in the new year. We're going to lead off with a with a bang with our first episode on dragons. So, until then.
0: Dragons Part 1. Yes.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other episodes along with notes and transcripts and some fun images at realfantasticbeasts.com.